0: Turned on? Yep. Well, we are in Joshua chapter 7 today. I hate to wait too long because then it just sets a bad precedent. We are going to read the entire chapter. It really, I think, just does a really disservice to to the subject if we... I kind of only read half, so we're just going to read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few." So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed things shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Tsarhites, and he brought the family of the Tsarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran under the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And he took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day, and all Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Acre, unto this day. And let's pray. Father, again, it's always a privilege to study your word, and I pray that you'll give us Wisdom and insight, may your spirit guide us and, and as always, allow us to learn the, the true meaning of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we left off two weeks ago with the conclusion of the battle of Jericho. And, of course, you notice the first word of this chapter. Um, you know, when things are going so well, sin can immediately interrupt sweet fellowship with the Lord. And, of course, that's what happens here. And so things change rather quickly. The previous chapter ends so well, and this chapter, unfortunately, isn't really about anything pleasant. Notice in verse number one, Achan is identified as the one who commits the sin there in the middle of the verse, and yet the Lord is angry with the children of Israel. He is angry with the entire nation. It says the, the, the Lord was The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now back in chapter 6 verse 18, Joshua had warned them that the entire camp of Israel would be under a curse. That this behavior, if anybody was to break the ban and violate the instructions that God had given, that it wasn't going to be just their own... You know, just just themselves involved in, in the displeasure of the Lord. God was going to be angry with everyone. And we see that in chapter 7, verse 11. It starts out, Israel has sinned. Again, not identifying Achan alone. And turn to chapter 22, Joshua chapter 22. Just want to look at one verse there. Joshua chapter 22, verse 20. It says, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? I mean, the point there is, did not one man commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel. And that man perished not alone in his iniquity. You can turn back to Joshua chapter 7. So, you know, the question that many people have and and, uh, many people struggle with was, why was God angry with the entire nation? For the sins of apparently one man. And God had warned, God had told them that His covenant was with the entire nation. Uh, His covenant wasn't with one man. They were viewed as a whole. Israel was a a corporate entity, it was a single unit. Um, So God, you know, considered one person's violating the covenant, the entire nation violating the covenant. Turn back to Joshua chapter six, verse twenty-three. Uh, the The importance some people see in this verse, the importance of Israel being set apart as Israel being a a single unit corporately. Um, when they had brought out Rahab and her family, it says that they left them without or outside the camp of Israel. There at the end of verse twenty-three, and many people believe that that was the reason for that was to inquire of their loyalty to make sure that you know there wasn't going to be some sort of uh you know mysterious thing going on them trying to infiltrate the camp of Israel that that they were really going to be loyal to the god of Israel and you know we have to be careful who becomes a part of the church body uh, just like they were seemingly careful there as to who became a part of Israel i remember uh, Last year about this time, when we were coming back from Peru, I, when we were trying to get back into the United States, I had gotten separated from the other guys because there was a Doug Nelson that was wanted and there's like 10,000 of us, but they had to go through the, the proper procedures to make sure that I wasn't the one they were looking for. And so I was taken aside just to make sure, you know, that we weren't going to be in cahoots and, you know, to see that all of our stories were straight. And, and obviously they finally got it figured out. I was grateful for that, but, uh, you know, that's what they did. They were very, they're very careful about, uh, you know, deciding who gets to come back into the country. The question comes up, why did Aiken sin? Uh, he's got a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. I mean, in, in some ways that's somewhat of an obvious question. Uh, but, you know, um, some have certainly questioned, did the did the nation of Israel fail in its spiritual education? Um, maybe. Did they fail to teach proper reverence for God? Maybe. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't take that too far. I know in my life, I look back and, um, you know, the rebellion that I was involved in and the poor decisions that I made and the sin that I was involved in. I can't point to the church as being responsible for that. I mean, I was raised in church and I knew what the Bible said and, you know, I made decisions that were contrary to the Bible. I I just doesn't make any sense for me to point my finger at the church and say, well, you know, it's the church's fault. They didn't teach me this or just that doesn't doesn't fit. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, you know, as to whether or not the the nation failed in teaching Achan you know the proper reverence for god but ultimately the the consequences are his he he made his decision he you know he knew the rules and greed overtook him and he he took those things now he may have reasoned that you know the the instructions were to burn everything he may have reasoned uh, that seemed like a waste to burn it that's dangerous we start using logic to figure out ways to ignore God's commands that's what king Saul did when he was trying to you know explain to Samuel why he had disobeyed God he was trying to use human logic well i did it for this reason and you know God should overlook my sin because we were going to use the stuff for a sacrifice and Samuel said no 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 it doesn't it doesn't work like that and so you know even if that's what he can thought again yeah it doesn't work like that he can't just make up his own rules it's also worth noting that this verse, this first verse here in chapter 7, doesn't give us any hint as to how much was taken. The quantity seems irrelevant. We only know at this point because we read the entire chapter. Joshua doesn't know. He doesn't even know anything was taken. He doesn't even know why God's angry yet. But again, the, the magnitude of the sin, the, the the quantity of the theft is is really of no importance. It doesn't matter if it was a, a Bernie madoff size theft, you know, or... or you know if it would have even been smaller than what he had taken it just god was angry he had disobeyed god and one of the thing one of the reasons that i thought it was really important that we read the entire chapter was the entire ch- the chapter begins and ends with the wrath of god in verse number 1 the wrath of god is expressed and in the last verse of the chapter the god turned from his wrath and you know we don't want to lose sight of that uh, you know, we don't want to minimize or trivialize God's wrath. I know uh, I was looking online at, at Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, you know, a lot of people want to trivialize God's wrath. They want to have the attitude, well, you know, it's just a small matter. It doesn't make any difference. And and God doesn't view it that way. Verse number two, Joshua sends spies to assess the task at hand and Strategically, AI did seem like the logical choice for the next city to conquer. It was the high ground on a hill. Um, a lot is made as to whether or not. You know, of course, we read the chapter, and you know what happens. You know, they they end up retreating, and and men are killed in the retreat. And, and a lot is made as to whether or not Joshua should have prayed before this battle. A lot of, a lot of discussion about that, and. Yes, he probably should have. I think it's prudent, it's wise to consult the Lord when we're entering into anything. Um, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that that's not the reason God was angry. I think people end up spending so much time on worrying about whether or not Joshua should have prayed that you know, they, they begin to think that somehow God was angry because Joshua failed to pray or, or seemingly failed to pray. And that's not the reason that God was angry. God was angry because of Achan's sin, because his covenant had been violated. So we don't want to get too distracted and caught up in that. Now, it does seem that, uh, look down at verse number 12. It seems that God is implying that maybe Joshua should have rooted out this sin, that he should have detected it somehow. He says there at the end of the verse 12, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. In other words, this tragedy could have been avoided if they would have detected and destroyed the, the accursed from among them. Now, when I say the tragedy could have been avoided, I'm talking about the, the, the death of the 36 men, and, and some believe more so in the, in the battle at AI. That doesn't necessarily mean that the, you know, that the death of Achan would have been prevented, but the death of these 36 men. And also in verse number twenty-six, we see the same thing, where God's wrath was turned because of the the destruction of those that the things and the people that were associated with the curse. So, uh, yeah, there may you know it may be a, a logical conclusion that that uh, maybe this could have been averted if Joshua had prayed and asked God if there was any reason that they shouldn't have continued with the conquest. I don't necessarily have a a problem with that. I, I know that uh, John Calvin argues that, that 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 this could not have been avoided. That God intentionally blinded Joshua and these men just so that he could display his anger. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that. Not because I can't accept it. I mean, if that's what the Bible teaches, that's what the Bible teaches. But again, I'm just you know as I look at verses 12 and 26, I'm not convinced that that uh, that Joshua shouldn't have you know that, that this couldn't have been prevented and i'm not i'm not certain verse number 3 the spies go up as Joshua had instructed them and and they come back and of course they make the suggestion that not everyone needs to go to battle and and again there's much criticism of this many have have uh, have de- have argued that the the spies uh, demonstrate laziness in this suggestion by by suggesting that only a few they people suggest that they are overconfident that they are self confident. I don't see it that way. Um, I think when you look at Joshua chapter one verses eight and nine, I think God expected His people to be confident, confident in Him, not confident in themselves, but confident in Him. And also, given the fact that God was upset because His covenant had been violated, I don't think it would have mattered how many people they would have sent to battle. They still would have been in retreat and there still would have been casualties. So, again, I don't know that that, that that's a very, that you can make a really good case for this having demonstrated laziness or overconfidence on the part of those that were sent. Certainly they are surprised. They don't know anything about this violation that Achan has committed. So they're certainly surprised when they retreat. Verse number 5, the way it's worded, some believed that more than 36 were killed. It says there at the beginning, and the men of Ai smote of, smote of them, about 30 and 6 men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shabarim, and then again smote them in the going down. So whether or not that, that means there were even more than 36 casualties, you know, I'm not sure. But nevertheless, unnecessary. The people were dispirited. They, they certainly expected to God, God to, to, they, they thought everything was going to be easy based on the promises that they had received from God in the first chapter. But, um, you know, God had promised to drive out the inhabitants. He didn't promise to, to do that if they were going to be disobedient to his instructions. If they were, you know, which is exactly what, what Achan had done. His sin had interfered with this. Verse number six. Now again, we know why God is angry because we've read the entire chapter. Joshua doesn't know anything about that yet. So he's, he's clueless. He's, he's, you know, he goes into mourning. He tears his clothing. He demonstrates humility by, and reverence by falling to the ground. The er, The elders do the same thing. Joshua begins to ask God why. He begins to doubt, seemingly begins to doubt God's wisdom in bringing them into the land. And, you know, as I read these verses, you know, the the question I certainly had was, you know, is is he treading on thin ice? Is he starting to murmur and complain like those that left Egypt? Now, keep your place there in Joshua chapter 7, but turn back to Numbers chapter 14. I, I think there are clearly some similarities between the behavior of the people after the 12 spies had returned from the initial spying out the promised land 38 years earlier um there are some similarities, but I, I think there's also some notable differences. So if we can look at some of the verses in Numbers 14 and, and Joshua chapter 7. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And all the congregation lifted up their voice. Again, this is after Joshua and Caleb have come back with a good report, but ten spies have come back with a very evil report, a very unbelieving report. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. Now again, that's kind of similar to what Joshua had said. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. But again, I think there are some differences. In Numbers chapter 14, the people are complaining against Moses and Aaron. In Numbers 14.9, it says they are complaining against the Lord. In verse 11, it says they have provoked the Lord. Now, Joshua is not doing that. Joshua is complaining to God, not about God. There's a difference. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, we see the de- we see the behavior of Moses and Aaron falling on their faces and we see Joshua and Caleb searching uh renting their clothes this is again their demonstration of humility the people are not doing that. That, that that's not their behavior in verse number 4 we see the the people mount an insurrection they say one to another let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt so we don't see that kind of behavior in in Joshua we we certainly see Joshua Leaning towards, you know, that, but he doesn't go that far. Again, he's, he's probably treading a fine line. He's walking on thin ice, but, uh, his words are more of despair, not words of unbelief as the words of the, the people are here in Numbers 14. And, you know, many of us in times of weakness, we question the Lord, we lash out at God, but hopefully we come to our senses and come back to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and say, Wow, I really blew it. We, we see the, the wisdom of God's plan unfold and realize that we were wrong, that we misjudged. That's all we can do. Notice in Numbers 14, verse 18, Moses says, the Lord is long suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So even though, you know, he was going to deal rather harshly with these, these, uh, un, you know, these unbelievers and he was going to, sentenced them to 38 years of or 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and not getting to go into the promised land yet he is long suffering and of great mercy and that's exactly what he does in numbers 1433 he does condemn them to 40 years of wandering but notice in verse number 42 there of numbers 14 they meet the same fate that the Israelites are meeting when they go to the battle of Ai Moses said go not up for the lord is not among you That ye be not smitten before your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. Same argument God's making to Joshua in chapter 7. He says, I'm not with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill, and smote them, and disconfited them even unto Hormah. So again, they're defeated by the Amalekites the same way and for the same reason that God wasn't with them during the Battle of Ai. Now turn to back to Joshua chapter 7. We see in verse number 8, Joshua knows God is not with them. He he still doesn't know why. He said, you know, he he's kind of on the, you know, again, kind of on the border of complaining. He says things aren't going as planned. Um, you know, when things aren't going as we expect, we should not go to God in an accusatory way. You know, we, we need to go to God and ask Him to, to give us wisdom and, and, you know, maybe He will let us in on His plan. Maybe He won't, but we, we don't have the, we don't have the right to, to be accusatory and accuse Him of being unjust. Verse number nine, Joshua's fears are, are, understandable he says the Canaanites will be emboldened to fight back you know they're backed up against the flooding Jordan River it's not like they can easily just go back we we're all aware of the miracle that that took place to part the Jordan River so that they could have crossed it in the first place but ultimately Joshua's behavior is that is the same as that of Moses in Numbers chapter 14 he appeals to God to protect God's great name ultimately It's God's glory that Joshua is after. Notice there in verse number verse number nine. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round about and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And that was the same argument that Moses made in Numbers 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, You've got to you've got to deliver on your promise because you know, the Egyptians are going to say, you weren't able to deliver on your promise. You've got to protect your great name. That was the argument that Moses made. And that's the argument that Joshua makes here. So I think ultimately, we can we can see that Joshua's not after his own glory. He's not after, you know, necessarily glory for the nation of Israel. He's after the glory for for God. Matthew Henry says, we as a church must plead the same prayer. God be merciful and forgiving of your church to bring glory to your great name. We don't want to be, we don't want to be a, a God honoring church just so that people look at us and say, boy, look at those people at Westwood Heights. Boy, they sure, they sure have got it together and bring glory to ourselves. But we do want to be God honoring so that people will look at our church and say, you know, give glory to the Lord. He's working through those people. He's doing something there. There's, a, there's certainly a difference, obviously. Verse number ten. God's answer came while Joshua was lying down and pleading before the Lord. That that the context seemed to be seems to be that God is saying, "Get up! You know, what are you doing? You know, on with it. Take care of business. You know, address this sin." Now he had been laying there since eventide. If you look back to verse number six, so you know it could be that his behavior was was just fine and that the lord was just basically saying that it was you know enough time had gone by it needed to end but i think again the the context is more that you know he just needed to needed to be about addressing you know the the sin that was the cause of this uh, the cause of the lord's anger verse number 11 we see again that israel has sinned you know it doesn't say Achan is sin uh, god's covenant was broken he had been stolen from the one question that I have that, that I've asked myself many times as I've read this chapter and, and, you know, over the years, and, and I don't know that, you know, we'll ever know the answer to the question. Um, you know, at what point did Aiken reach the point of no return? You know, at what point was, was he going to be condemned to death? Um, he could have, In several, you know, in several points along this, this route, pled for forgiveness. Um, You know, he basically holds out till the bitter end. I mean, we're not going to see that until we get to the, you know, the very last few verses in chapter seven, but there are plenty of opportunities for him to, to come clean and he doesn't. And. You know, you might say, well, the Lord was going to, you know, he he had already received a death sentence and, you know, there was no way he was going to get out of it. But that might be true, but that might not be true. Um, God is very merciful, as we just read there in Numbers fourteen eighteen, And we know from some of the verses that we looked at several weeks ago, God changes his mind. He's he can do that anytime he wants. And so, at any time, Aiken could have decided, you know, I just need to put an end to this. My, you know, my conscience is bothering me. I need to come clean. I can see what's going on. I, you know, did he suspect at all that the thirty-six men that had been killed had been killed on his account? I don't know. But, but again, you know, you have to wonder. You know, there are several times along this route when, you know, it just seems like Aiken would have had the opportunity to just say, "Okay, you know, enough." But he doesn't do that and certainly a lesson for us you know i you know, I know in my life i just think wow do i want to keep in you know do i want to continue in my rebellion against the lord how far do i want to push the lord he may not be merciful i may, i may meet the same fate as Achan. you know we don't want to que- we don't want to we don't want to test god or tempt god in that way verse number 12 god makes it clear that the sin must be dealt with this sin must be dealt with, and then God will restore his blessings. Only after that the sin's been dealt with will God restore his blessings. And he gives the solution. You know, God is interested in restoration, and he provides a solution. The solution is everything that is associated with that which is accursed has to be destroyed. That's the stuff and the people. Seems rather harsh. A lot of people have a problem with it, but that's the solution that God gives. God says you have to choose between me and sin, between tolerance and obedience. I want to read a couple of lines from this book that I have by Del Ralph Davis, because I, you know, there's no sense in me paraphrasing what he says. I think it's very appropriate. As far as an application to the church, this is what he says. The apparent absence of God in various segments of the church may be due to our unwillingness to purge evil from our midst by the costly exercise of church discipline. I realize that some churches are too vigorous, punitive, and insensitive in the application of discipline. But generally, the contemporary church errs on the side of laxity. Our problem is that we prefer the tolerance of men to the praise of God. Hopefully that's not true of our church. But it's very clear here that God expects Joshua not only to deal with this sin, but to deal with it very quickly. Verse number 13. God says, Up, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee. Everyone was to search their hearts and determine whether they were in need of cleansing. Even though there's only one person that had actually gone so far as to take the stuff. you have to wonder how many people thought about taking the stuff. You know, there's there's three phases here of of Achan's sin. You know, he saw the stuff, he lusted after the stuff, and then he took the stuff. Many people may have just, you know, gone so far as the first two. They saw the stuff, they lusted after it. They didn't go so far as to take it, but they still have need of forgiveness. They still have need of cleansing. They may have rehearsed in their mind everything that they were going to do. We, we do that in our own minds. I'm sure all of us are guilty of that. We rehearse sin in our minds and then somehow we, you know, we feel good because we didn't actually translate the rehearsal in our mind of that sin into actions. And, and it's a good thing that we didn't, but nevertheless, there's still sin there. We still have need of cleansing. We still need to go to ask God for forgiveness. So again, you know, at this point, probably too late for Achan to have spared his life. But again, we don't know that. We never know when God's mercy will exceed all of our expectations. In verses 14 and 15, they have to go through this process of bringing the families. And God is going to show Joshua He's going to narrow this thing down and, and eventually get down to the exact person who is guilty of the offense. He makes it clear in verse number 15 that the death penalty is, is, is on the table. Um, you know, the death penalty, if used appropriately, is, is obviously a deterrent to crime. I I don't think in our country that's necessarily true. It's, it's, we just make a mockery of it. We don't use it appropriately. We don't use it efficiently. We don't use it uh, quickly. And so it's not effective. But if it were used the way God intended it to be used, it would be effective. And, you know, that's exactly what it's going to be here. It's going to be used to demonstrate to people what is going to happen to them if they dare to do the things that Achan had done. It's going to be used as a deterrent. Verses 16 and 17 says, Joshua rose up early in the morning... Now, whether or not he couldn't sleep, I don't know. You know, we've seen a pattern in the book of Joshua about him getting up early. There's no hint in the entire book that Joshua was ever a procrastinator about anything. But maybe he couldn't sleep. Many of us, probably, when we are faced with the responsibility and the task of doing something unpleasant, we just want to get it over with, and so we get up early and get on with it. You know, that's... You know, it's kind of too extreme, you know, just get it over with and get it, get it done quickly or, you know, keep procrastinating and try to find a way to avoid it, try to get out of it. We also see here in this verse that it was the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah had been promised great things back in the book of Genesis. The deliverer of the Lord Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. The best families have to deal with sin and the reproach of sin. They're held to the same standard. I think, of the, I think of the story in Numbers chapter 25. You don't need to turn back there. But in Numbers 25, the Israelites were committing whoredom with the Moabites and God's anger was kindled so that a plague consumed 24,000 of them. One of them was so bold and flagrant in their sin that they brought a man brought a Midianitish woman into his tent and it says he just brought her in. Didn't even try to hide her. Just paraded her right in in front of Moses and the rest. It says Phineas thrust a javelin through them both, and God's anger was turned away. Numbers chapter twenty-five, verses fourteen and fifteen about that story says, Those two, the two that had been that had the the spear thrust through them were both from chief families. You know, one an Israelite and one a Midianite. There's no special treatment. There wasn't no double standard it didn't matter that they were from chief families they still were met with that demise here in the book here in Joshua 7 Jewish tradition says that when the leaders of this tribe of Judah when it had been narrowed down to the tribe of Judah they drew their swords and said they would not sheath them until the man bringing reproach to their tribe was destroyed Now, as this process was going on, notice there in verse number 18, it says, "And he brought his, he brought it, and he brought his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken." It says, "You know, it's it's giving you the exact, it's telling you who his father and his grandfather are." Can you imagine how they felt as this was going on? My dad probably received a few phone calls in his life, you know, and his reaction was, "My son did what?" Yeah, that's how that's how it goes, and you just you got to face it, you got to deal with it. It's certainly not a pleasant and comfortable situation for those men. Verse number twenty, or no, verse number nineteen. Joshua said unto Achan, "My son, give I pray thee glory to the Lord God of Israel." This is very tender. Joshua certainly knows his fate at this point. He he knows that this this. Man and his, everything associated with him is going to be destroyed, but he gives him an opportunity to repent. Possibly save his soul. Not his life, but his soul. He had robbed God of glory. Repentance doesn't give, doesn't negate the consequences of his actions, but nevertheless it's required. He says, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him. Confession does bring God glory. When we confess our sins to the Lord, what we're doing is acknowledging that He is just in punishing us. That we're deserving of that punishment. Confession of sin should be specific. In verse number 20, the the verse ends, and thus and thus Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and thus and thus have I done. That, That means he just spelled it all out. He didn't hold anything back. He knew it was too late. There was nothing, nothing more to hide, and that's what we should do before the Lord. Our sin should be specific. It it helps us understand our sin better if we are more specific when we're confessing our sin. You know, it doesn't really do a whole lot of, it doesn't bring a whole lot of conviction to just pray to the Lord and say, you know, forgive me for all my sins today. You know, try to try to narrow them down, try to pinpoint them. Verse number twenty, Achan finally owns his sin. The only honorable thing he's done so far. Many people are concerned what others will think. That others will think less of them if they know their faults. People think even less of us if we try to hide our faults. If we're not willing to admit our faults. For for many of us, it is just hard to say, "I made a mistake. I sinned." And of course, many, many of us are aware, Alcoholics Anonymous, that's step one. It's just the way it is. They just throw you out the door. If you can't get past step one, there's no place for you. you just got to admit that you have a problem. That's what Achan finally does here. He ignits he has a problem. Also, we must acknowledge whom we've sinned against. Notice there in verse number 20, he says, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And that's an important lesson that we need to teach our children. Certainly it's, you know, we, we let our children know when their behavior is displeasing to us, but we should also let them know that their behavior is more importantly displeasing to the Lord. They're going to be out from under our rule eventually. And so they certainly are going to need to understand the distinction at that point. Then they're going to be answerable, you know, for the most part, just to the Lord, not, not to us as parents. Verse number 21, this is where we finally found out what was stolen. The Babylonian garment, the silver, the gold. Try to put it in some sort of context. The silver would be about $3,000 today. The gold about $40,000. Unless you're talking two years ago when silver was two and a half times the price it is now. It fluctuates quite a bit. The garment was supposed to have been burnt, but the silver and gold were supposed to have been taken for God. Once you start stealing, it becomes easier and easier, and covetousness is never satisfied. There's always somebody that's got more, and there's always somebody that's got less. And, you know, we see here in verse 21, look at Aiken's own description. I saw. Verse number 21, when I saw... And then later on in the verse, then I coveted and then I took. We could avoid a lot of sin if we would not look upon certain things. Homes, wealth, beauty. Job thirty-one, one. Job made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look upon a maid. It's not so much the looking, but the lusting. If we look through biblical lens, we see things as they are. Achan should have seen those things much differently than he did. You know, instead of looking at those things and thinking of all of the things he could have done with the money that he was going to get from them, he should have looked at those things and said, I can take those things and I can present them to the Lord. That's exactly how he should have viewed them. He should should have looked at them in, in a biblical perspective. How sad it is to view our giving as a drudgery instead of a privilege. We should look at our giving as an opportunity. We get to give to the Lord. We don't have to give to the Lord. If that's, if that's our attitude, boy, that's, that's pretty sad. And also we see here that his hiding of them clearly proves he wasn't supposed to have them and that he knew he wasn't supposed to have them. Proverbs, many verses in Proverbs, but um, just one I'll mention, verse number, chapter 13, verse 11 tells us that riches obtained through hard work carry a sweet reward, but through ill-gotten gain, a bitter reward. Colossians 3.5 says, covetousness is an act of worship. It's idolatry, worshiping things in the place of God. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Do we get that? The wrong view of things brings sorrow. The wrong view of money brings sorrow you've heard it said before there was a man used to go to this church said he was going to give two hundred thousand dollars to missions when he when he got a million dollars if you have ten dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and you haven't given any much money to missions you're not going to give any money to missions when you get a million dollars it just doesn't work like that that's just nonsense that's unbiblical god says if you can't be faithful in the small things you're he's not going to give you the big things he's not going to trust you with the big things that's just that doesn't make any sense. You and I may you you and I may say that we're just like Achan. But be careful about false humility. Humility is not to deny your talents and gifts, but to put them in proper perspective. To see them as God given and easily taken away. You don't need to turn to Job, but I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to Job chapter 31. I actually just want to read one of the editorial comments at the bottom of my Bible. Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31 is Job making a defense of himself. You're familiar with the story. His three friends have been pretty critical of him. In Job chapter 31, Job claims moral purity. Verse 1. Honesty, verse 5. Fidelity to his wife, verses 9 and 10. Fair treatment of his servants, verses 13 through 15. Help given to the poor and fatherless, verses 16 through 23. Rejection of materialism, verses 24 and 25. Rejection of idolatry, verses 26 through 28. Dealing kindly with his enemies, verses 29 through 32. And confession of sins, verses 33 and 34. The interesting thing about this is that God never disputes any of these things. He doesn't. God has plenty to criticize Job about. In verses, or in chapters 38 and 39, God asks Job 83 questions for which he doesn't have an answer to a single one. God teaches Job a lot about humility. He teaches Job that there's a lot about God that Job doesn't understand. That Job doesn't understand why God has him going through the suffering that he's going through. But all of these things that Job claims in chapter 31 the Lord never disputes. You know, false humility is in actually a form of pride. Some people use false humility as a as an opportunity to avoid responsibility. You know, they say, "Well, I could never do that." And then deny that they have a, a talent or a gift. We don't certainly we don't want to be like the Pharisee in Luke eighteen who's you know, looks down on the publican next to him and says, Boy, I thank God that I'm not like that man. But we don't want to be like that. I mean, obviously we have a long way to go. We have a lot of room for improvement. But we don't we don't want to get caught up in false humility either. You know, we we may say, Well, you know, we're just like Achan. Well, in a lot of ways we are just like Achan. But we didn't there was plenty of people who didn't take it. It says he saw, he coveted, and he took. And, you know, thank God that we don't always take it to that extent. That God has given us fruit in our lives. If we didn't believe that studying God's Word was beneficial and that it made us more like Christ, well then, why are we here? I mean, wouldn't we conclude this is Just a big waste of time if we are going to, you know, puff ourselves up with false humility and, you know. No, I don't think so. I think God wants us to give him the 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 praise for the fruit that we see in our lives. That's what his word does in our lives. It's purifying. It's it washes us, it cleanses us. So, yeah, we don't want to be puffed up with pride, but at the same time we can be thankful to the Lord that we we don't always Give in to sin. But there is victory to be obtained. Verse number 22. Proof is gathered of the sin. It says they ran probably to prevent family members from moving it or just to get it quickly and get it out of Israel because obviously God was very angry about it. Unnecessary delays in dealing with sin usually lead to more trouble. In verse number 23, we we see the things are shown to everyone to squelch any naysayers and to show that the things belong to God. Verse number 24, this this is a difficult one. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them unto the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them, not just him, them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. A lot of people really struggle with that. You know, his family was destroyed as a result of his sin. Everything that he had. Some people just say, well, you know, you can't take the Bible literally. I just dismissed, I just dismissed that out of hand. I mean, I just, you know. That's just a cop out. Just because we don't understand something doesn't give us the excuse to just, you know, well, you know, that's an allegory or that's just, you know, hyperbole. No, that's not the point. Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen says that the children were not supposed to be punished for the sins of their father. And so many have concluded that they must have been accomplices in this. Many conclude that. I mean, there are a lot of people who just can come to, you know, just cannot accept the fact that, that the family members were, were killed as a result of Achan's sin, that somehow they must have been aiders and abettors. They make the arguments, well, you know, it would have been very difficult for him to have put that stuff in the tent without the family knowing. Well, that doesn't answer the question, well, what about the animals? Were they complicit in this crime? I mean, how does that work? I mean, I have a couple of dogs. They've chewed up a few things and killed a few chickens, but I mean, nothing to get stoned over. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, they may rebel against me. They're not rebelling against God. So I think that the people are just looking for a way to rationalize this, a way to make it more palatable, a way, a way to make it more acceptable. This was punishment for violating the ban. And this command came directly from God. I mean, yeah, Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, I, I think there's a difference there. That that was that command was given to those that were going to be administering justice, you know, earthly men that were going to be making decisions about someone. This is God giving these instructions directly to Joshua. So I don't see this as a contradiction. God was wanting to drive home the importance of not violating his covenant, and he just This is what he chose to do. You know, we may not have a good explanation for it, but that doesn't mean we can just sweep it under the rug, that we can just wipe it away and say, well, it didn't really happen the way the Bible says it happened because we don't like it. It just doesn't work that way. Remember, Joshua 6.18 said that the sin of violating the band would trouble the whole camp of Israel. Now, was Achan saved? And I know we're just about out of time. Was Achan saved? I used to think, well, what, what, what a, what a no-brainer. Of course not. But I don't know that that's. I don't know that we can make that argument. I don't know that. I, you know, we're in a whole lot of evidence, particularly in the Old Testament. A lot was saved. We know covetousness is a sin that New Testament Christians struggle with. Paul made that clear. You know, some people see here in verse number. 25, an indication that he might have been saved. It says, why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. Some people see in that that that's saying that you're going to be troubled in this earthly life, but maybe not troubled in the afterlife. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, like I said, I used to think it was clear. I'm not so sure it was clear. As Pastor pointed out a few weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira were saved. They obviously had problems with how they handled money. So I, I don't know that we can be perfectly, you know, we can be perfectly clear. And then lastly, and I'm just about done. Again, this was to be a deterrent. First Timothy 5:20, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Notice there in verse number, verse number 25. All Israel stoned him with stones. Each one was to be a participant. Each one was to—it's thought that the, that each one having to participate in the stoning of them was an admission that what they were demonstrating was that they understood that, you know, they were Aiken and his that Aiken was deserving of this, and that they understood that, you know, this drove the point home to them that they were not to be violating God's covenant. I think ultimately, if we view God's handling of this situation as an overreaction. I think that is proof that we don't under, that we do not appreciate the seriousness of sinning against him. I just that's I don't know what other conclusion we can come to. I again we can't uh, you know if anything it should cause us to just appreciate all the more what Christ has done for us in appeasing the wrath of God. And that's that's ultimately I think what the what is designed to do what what this situation is designed to do. Alright, I've gone way over, sorry. You're dismissed.